Ruth chapter 2, verses 11 through 23. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your, for <clears throat> your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land to come to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsels in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some <clears throat> left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also <clears throat> pull out some of the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up, and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law, it, with whom she had worked, and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and the wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Well, we've been in Ruth, as you are probably aware. Um, <clears throat> last week, we spent some time in the first part of that second ch chapter, the second act, if you will, right, in the drama that we're looking at, here in Ruth, and um, 
I'm not going to spend too much time on the, on the review this week, but we looked at the ambition of Ruth, didn't we? You remember that? She showed ambition. She showed courage. And that was based upon something. Remember what that was? It was based upon, it was properly motivated because of her devotion, her devotion to Naomi and then to Naomi's God. We looked at Boaz a little bit. We're going to see more of him here in a minute, of all of them. But we specifically talked about Boaz's integrity particularly integrity being shown through courage and through kindness, if you remember that. So this week, open your Bibles if they're not already open to that second chapter. But before we get into that, you might have to bear with me. I'll cough a little bit this morning. I'm sorry about that. But before we get into that second that, uh, second half of the second chapter, I want to, maybe it's out of the ordinary for me, but I want to tell you a story right here. It's a story, it's a rendition, a shortened rendition of the story of Eric Little. Anybody ever heard of him? Just a few of you, all right. Now, there, there are multiple parallels, I, I felt, between the story of Eric Little and some of the things we're looking at today <clears throat> out, of the Ruth, out of the life of Ruth and the life of Boaz specifically, characteristics. And... So I'm not going to point them all out as we go through um, the story of Ruth here in a minute, but keep your eye out for them. This is an exercise a little bit for you. And um, what, what parallels do you see? And then how do those things reach into my life, into your life? So I recently read a short account of, of Little's Life, written by Eric Metaxas, was the one I read. There are multiple books and biographies out there about him. If you haven't read one, I definitely encourage you to do so. Remarkable man. Eric Little was born in China in 1902. He doesn't look Chinese. That's because he was Scottish. He was born to Scottish missionaries in China in 1902. When he was five years old, the family moved back to Scotland. And over the years, it became obvious that Eric had special talents in sports, specifically running and rugby. He excelled greatly at both of these and other things. He was especially talented in short sprints, short um, races. In college, he gained national attention by winning the 100 and the 200 meter in an amateur athletics association about 1923. But along with this, Eric was a devout Christian. And as he became more well-known, he had various speaking opportunities Now, Eric hated public speaking, but he felt that it was a good way to share his faith with those who might not otherwise hear the gospel. They would show up to hear what this sports hero had to say, and humbly, Eric thanked God for his unique gift and also for this opportunity to share the testimony concerning Jesus in his life. Now, as an active Christian... Eric was known in the sports community for his care and his graciousness. For example, he always shook hands with the other competitors before the game. He loaned them his trowel to dig out their starting blocks, things like this. And there's lots more that could go into this story, but many of you know this name. Now, why is that? Probably it's because of his reputation, specifically his reputation to stand by his principles no matter what particularly the incident that took place in his life around the 1924 
Paris Olympics. Now, Eric was chosen to represent Scotland in the Olympics. He would run, of course, the 100 meter. He was a favorite for being the winner of the gold. But upon learning that the heats of the race took place on Sunday, the Lord's Day, Eric refused to run. For him, Sunday was the Lord's Day all day. That didn't mean he could go to church in the morning and then go run in the afternoon. And that meant he would rest from all other activities. When the heats were eventually taking place, by the way, he was found in the local church sharing with the congregants. Now, whether or not you agree with the theological conclusion that Eric arrived at, we certainly see a man of principle. The Olympic Committee did everything in their power to convince him, to persuade him to change his mind, and they even tried to change the, the, the race uh, timing to no avail. Even Scotland felt that Eric had betrayed them. So eventually it was decided he would run the 400-meter race, though his chances were very slim. That was not his race, very different race. But Eric had made up his mind. To him, it was simple obedience to God, and the Olympics and all of his future were in the hands of the Lord. So with only six months before the Olympic Games, he began to train for the 400. And we're going to leave out a lot of details here, but... Uh, miraculously, it would seem almost, Eric won that 400-meter race. He won the gold for Scotland, and while he was at it, he broke the world record for that particular race. Now think about it. Had Eric not firmly stood by his principles, he probably would have won that 100-meter. He would have got the gold medal in the 24 Olympics. And probably no one here today would know of Eric Little. But God blessed him, and he blessed him because of his life of devotion to the Lord. And his reputation continues to honor God. Well, Eric graduated college directly after the Olympics, like within a few days of, of the Olympic Games. And soon after that, he gave up running for good. He didn't have to. Why did he do that? It was a sacrifice on his part. He wanted to go back to China as a missionary. Later in life, his daughter Patricia says his real life began after the Olympics. His, his, his wife, um, Patricia's mother, said that he seldom spoke about the Olympics. Now eventually, once in China, he married, he had two daughters, and then at the height of World War II, it was decided that his wife and the two daughters, and now with a third daughter on the way, would go back to Canada for safety. Eric never saw his family again when they left for Canada. Things got harder there as the Japanese tightened their hold, and eventually Eric, along with all other foreigners, were put in an internment camp. But Eric made the most of the event. He made it his business to serve others. Particularly, there's 300 children there and young people with no parents. And he reached out to them. He taught in their school, and even without any textbooks, he did his best to encourage and educate. He wrote his own textbooks. He was a, a scientist. One of the former students there in the camp says he was loving, he was accepting, and he would do anything if it would help someone else. One example of this was when a friend's shoes had totally worn out. There was no shoes to be had. Eric handed him something wrapped in a cloth. 
It turned out to be Eric's pair of running shoes. He gave up the sentimental value for the practical service they would render a friend. After two full years in the camp, Eric began to have extreme headaches, and soon thereafter he died of a brain tumor. He was 43 years old. Nevertheless, his life of devotion to God had carved a deep reputation for him. The author of a biography on Eric Little called The Flying Scotsman says this about him in an interview. She says he stood for, for principle. People admired that. People today are still fascinated by a man who could so effortless, effortlessly turn his back on the things that the rest of us admire so much. The material success, the fame that many of us crave. We want to be admired to be known. He had all of that, but he turned his back on it. His faith meant more to him than anything. Even if people aren't Christians, she, she says, they admire that. Another former student there in the internment camp sums it up well with these words. My impression was that the last thing he thought about was that whether or not Eric Little was marvelous, or excuse me, whether or not Eric Little was marvelous was the last thing he thought about. He loved God, he loved serving Him, and he loved people. If Eric Little was forgotten, that wouldn't worry him at all. Now, remarkably, Eric Little hasn't been forgotten. His reputation lives on, doesn't it? And it's not because he wanted a reputation, but because he lived in devotion to God. His faith, his biblical principles, they drove his life, and the reputation exists because of his decisions in life. We'll keep this story in mind now as we shift into the, into the book of Ruth and keep your life in mind. What areas would God have us work on today? What areas can we, should we surrender to him as we look at this? So look at verse 11. Let's start there and um, let's just ask God to meet us as we open his word. Father, thank you that you are here. Thank you for this preserved revelation that we have in our hand. Amazing when we think about it that you have preserved this for thousands of years, that we could see your heart, that we truly could understand you, your revelation. I pray that these few words we look at today would be a challenge for us. They would be something that can move us towards commitment and change in our spiritual walk with you we want to be more like you god thank you for your deep love for us and we love you too in jesus name amen so verse 11 after boaz has made his decision to extend kindness and generosity to ruth to show her favor um, we already saw ruth fall on her face in the prickly barley field and she asked, why are you showing favor to me, though I am a foreigner? That's, that's verse 10. And then Boaz responds to her with this question. He responds to her question with this, I should say. Everything you have done for your mother-in-law since your husband's death has been fully reported to me. And then the first thing he says there after that is how you left your father and your mother and your native land. Now, I said it last week, but I think Boaz recognized the full extent of Ruth's decision for devotion. Remember back there on the road to Bethlehem, 
when she spoke to Naomi and said, no, I'm going to go with you. She had given up all familiar and all familial ties. Probably we can assume that her father and her mother were alive at the time. She left them, Boaz says. And then additionally in verse 11, she came to a people she did not know. The wording there almost, almost wants us to think that Ruth had chosen exile from the comforts of home and family for her love, her kindness, her loyal devotion to Naomi. That's what Boaz is expressing here. All of this had reached Boaz before he met Ruth. Notice her reputation based upon her decision for devotion. And then Boaz goes on there in verse 12 to entreat God, his God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, for a blessing. He says, may the Lord our God reward you for what you have done. And may you receive a reward from the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. Now, as he repeats himself, he emphasizes it. He is in essence saying, well, I am not, I cannot reward you for the choice you've made, but God can. God is sovereign, and I know that he is not unaware of your choices. He is the God that repays people for good and for evil, for their deeds. Now, Boaz is responding here with theological accuracy, you might say. Um, It's not just flowery wording or poetic words. He says something akin to what we see in in Proverbs 19.17. It says there, Kindness to the poor is a loan to the Lord. And he, the Lord, will give a reward to the lender. Now, hadn't Ruth shown kindness to Naomi? Kindness to the poor? Incidentally, Boaz is also showing this sort of kindness to Ruth now too. The Lord then is being called upon to recognize this and to bless, to repay that loan. Look at the last line of Boaz's speech in verse 12. Under whose wings you have come for refuge. Boaz is characterizing his God, the God of Israel, as a mother bird. You've seen it. A mother bird extending her wings over her chicks to protect them, that they might find refuge there. Not only will God reward you, but may he protect you now as one of his. By the way, it's Israel's God that is to bless Ruth and then to protect her, even though technically she is not an Israelite, right? Boaz, though, he's recognizing and affirming Ruth's transfer of her spiritual allegiance from the gods of Moab to the gods of Israel. It's a significant statement, and, and only time will tell how this will come about. Both of these things that Boaz mentions in his blessing, how these things will take place as he calls upon the Lord. Now, take note, in these words we're looking at here, verse 11, verse 12, we're we're seeing a dependency upon God in Boaz's life, a priority in Boaz's life. I think it further reveals who, who the man is. He's not taking credit or boasting in his ability or his position or his wealth. Instead, he calls on God to be favorable and to be just with Ruth. He believes God is the sovereign in Israel, doesn't he? And he believes that, and then he lives within that framework of belief. 
in Israel, the covenant relationship with God. Well, verse 13, Ruth responds to him again, something like we see in, in 10. My Lord, you've been kind to me. You've been gracious and favorable. You have comforted me. That, that, those are the things she's expressing there. Your translations might differ a little bit. Boaz has comforted her. The meaning of that word leans toward something like, you have brought me relief. You've brought me relief. As a young chick in a rainstorm fleeing to the wings of its mother for refuge, she says she has found favor from God already. In this case, from, through the protective, the gracious acts of Boaz himself. She's recognizing some of that already coming to be. And then in addition to comfort, Boaz has spoken kindly to her. He has paid attention to her. Notice what Ruth said, who she calls herself there toward the end. She says, I am the lowest of servants. That, that last line of 13, there she's claiming for herself the lowest possible status of servant or slave. It may be translated a little differently. Sometimes you see maidservant there. That's the, the absolute bottom rung. It's even lower and less honorable than who she compares herself to, the, the servants that he hired to help with the harvest. But even so, Boaz has, has showed extraordinary kindness. In reality, he did not treat her like that lowest of low servant. Well, as, as we move along through the story and, and through the day now, look at verse 14. Sometime later, lunchtime or early afternoon or something, um, you, you continue the theme of righteous Boaz here, and he invites her. What does he do? He invites her to sit down with the harvesters for lunch. You see there, she sat beside the harvesters. Well, she had likely kept her distance at mealtime. The, the people of different statuses didn't sit together for meals, different social standings. That wasn't what they did. But Boaz says, no, come over here, sit on the bench and have lunch with us. In fact, you can have our food. Um, we, we wonder, did, could she have even afforded to bring her own lunch at that point? He gives her full access to their lunch, and you see it there, including the sauce or the whatever it's translated as. That would have been probably something to moisten the bread, to give it some flavor um, for, that was for the harvesters. <clears throat> and then roasted grain, probably a staple of the meal, probably something they had several times a day. And then with consistency to what we've been seeing of Boaz and his character, the author lets us know she didn't just have enough. It wasn't just the taste. She had more than enough. Somewhere she had some leftovers. Now, even here, Boaz is taking part in the fulfillment of that blessing that he had spoken earlier. Do you catch that? I really don't think this is based upon some romantic attraction at this point. Daniel Block says, something like this. He says, Boaz took an ordinary event, in this case a meal, and he transformed it into a magnanimous occasion for compassion, generosity, and acceptance. This is the biblical understanding of chesed. Remember that loyal kindness of God that we've talked about. God himself. Now Boaz is acting upon that. Before we move on, I wonder... Are there ways in our life where we could take a routine cultural event, a meal, maybe, 
and transform it into an opportunity to show the love and grace of God. That's the kindness that's been showed, shown to us, hasn't it? The forgiveness, the grace shown to us. How do we show that? In mercy, in generosity. Maybe it starts with your own family around a meal. But what about your friends, your neighbors, your workers, someone else? Well, the next thing you see, which we pointed out last week, you see Ruth get up from the meal to get back to work. Verse 15 there. Once she has moved out to glean, then Boaz gives an order to his young men. And again, it's a new, it's an extraordinary instruction to them. The author continues to hammer his point home. This is not just a, a play-by-play -play of events. This is showing us who Boaz is. Boaz is a man of noble character. And he has a belief that God is sovereign. Well, you see two parallel commands in the, in the next two lines, the next two verses, actually. And um, these reveal a little bit more about who Boaz is, what, what he's saying to them, and how he wants to treat Ruth. So notice the parallelism. First, he says to the hired harvesters there in 15, let her glean even between the sheaves. And, not, and do not rebuke her or make fun of her for doing so. Now, <clears throat> normally the reapers wouldn't have been allowed to glean between the sheaves. That was a lot better gleaning, a lot more grain to be had that would have, should have been going to the profit of the, of the landowner. But he wanted to increase her gleanings. But Boaz didn't stop there. Take a look at it. In parallel to the first command, then, verse 16, Boaz instructs them to actually pull out some of the choice stocks that they normally would bundle and set aside for the, for the landowner. That profitable crop, he says, leave some of those for Ruth. Drop them on the ground as if you're forgetting about those particular pieces of choice grain. And again, don't rebuke her. Probably as he says that, he, he's in specific, he's talking about verbally insulting or harassing her throughout the day. He's setting up a strict anti-harassment policy toward Ruth, if you will. Well, I don't know if you're sleeping or not, but I think that would be the only way to miss the compassion and the kindness that chesed from Boaz that we're seeing throughout this passage. I think we're also seeing faith as he shows generosity toward the foreigner and toward the widow. He's, he has a faith, a trust that God will take care of him. You know, I think I'd been tempted to hang on to every last bit of grain, the stockpile, good, good pile. Weren't, weren't they, if you think about it, weren't they just coming off of years of famine where there was little to no harvest this would have been the first real good harvest. But just as God had treated Israel time and again, providing for them when they didn't deserve it, Boaz treats the poor and the widow. They didn't deserve it either. In fact, the law didn't even require Boaz to go to the extent that he is going to with the poor and the widow. But he believed God. And he expressed that belief in action. In a minute, we're going to look at the report of Ruth's day there with, with, with Naomi. 
But before we do that, let some of this quality character in Boaz, the kindness, the generosity, the faith, let some of this sink in a little bit. There's undoubtedly ways in each of our lives that we can improve, that we can take a lesson from old Boaz here. I know there are in my life. What would it be in your life? I read a book once by a rabbi, Daniel Lappin. The rabbi's theory, in part, um, in that book, and it was based on the Old Testament largely, was that if everyone in the world was generous with everyone else in the world, giving of time and talents and resources, those kinds of things, we would all be extremely well off. We'd all be wealthy. We'd probably be healthier, safer, more comfortable, whatever else, right? We were designed to live that way, to be kind, to be gracious, to be generous, to be devoted to one another, to show the unselfish love of Christ that's been shown to us. Now, we're not going to see that in the world, but within the church, there's a possibility for that. Within Christ's church, there's a possibility because why? Because we have a long-term perspective. We know this thing lasts longer than this life. There is eternity in view. I think Boaz had an eternal viewpoint as well. Well, let's finish up the, the, in the last part of this chapter, verse 17. We see Ruth gathering grain until evening, and then she beat out what she had gathered. In other words, she had gathered the heads of grain, right? And then she, she took it somewhere and she threshed it. To do this, she needed a hard surface. Perhaps Boaz lent her his threshing floor. Uh, we don't know. She, she would have piled the seed heads there on the surface and then thrashed it with something like a rod or even a stick or, or perhaps a, uh, some kind of flail. And then to, she would need to separate the barley grain from the chaff, all the, the surrounding pieces and the stems. Of course, that's a little bit of work at the end of a long day of scavenging in the field. She then spent the time and threshed out her grain and once it was done, we, we mentioned last week, somewhere in the realm of six gallons worth of grain, 30 to 50 pounds, depending on a bunch of different factors. But in, all in all, it was an extremely wonderful yield for gleaning. I think it highlights two basic things. First, Ruth was ambitious. She worked hard, but it's also, it also would have been impossible for her to gather that much grain without the generosity of Boaz, putting her right where the good grain was. In verse 18, then she goes back to town with her grain. She shows her mother-in-law. I think both in this case would have been pleased, very pleased. You, you almost see it in the last few words of the, in their interchange in the last part of the passage. You see, you see them exclaiming in a different way than before. Additional to that, Naomi turned over her leftovers to her mother-in-law. Remember the roasted grain and whatnot? That's, that's something for her to do. I don't know how hungry Naomi was at that point, but um, she was generous again with Naomi, true to her character. Actually, we see that. Remember what Boaz commented on in verse 11? These small, seemingly small acts of kindness, that's why she had the reputation she did. Well, in verse 19, and, and then you, we come to, to 19, and, and you see through the end of the chapter, Naomi and Ruth, they have an interchange between them. 
concerning Boaz and Ruth's future gleaning career, um, Naomi sees the amount of grain and exclaims in amazement and surprise, where did you gather barley today and what field were you in? But before Ruth is able to give an answer, she proclaims a blessing on the one who obviously had paid attention, who had showed favor to her. Remember, Ruth went out with the idea, the hope to find favor with the harvesters, with an owner. She had done that. She had found favor. In the latter part of verse 19, Ruth finally and climactically, she tells Naomi the name of the man she had worked with. Notice how his name is at the very end of the, ch- of the verse, the very end of the line. That's, that's um, on purpose in order to bring climax to the, to the sentence and to the scene. Um, by the way, we don't see Naomi or, or Boaz. We don't see Boaz introduce himself to Ruth, but somehow, somewhere she had picked up on the name. And um, think about that. Naomi had asked for... Where did you work? Whose field were you in? And Ruth responds with, I worked with Boaz. So I think the, off, the author's cleverly bringing us around to the points he wants to make. That is, think about Boaz. He's a godly man. Well, with this information then of who she worked with, whose kindness they now are benefiting from, Naomi, picture, she looks up from her leftovers, her roasted grain, and she again exclaims, ah, may, may Yahweh, may the Lord bless him because he has not abandoned his kindness. See that word kindness right there? That's a translation of the word chesed. He has not abandoned his chesed to the living or the dead. Now, what did she mean by the living or the dead? I think Naomi sees Boaz's chesed being extended both to Ruth and to her, Naomi and Ruth, and also to their dead husbands. Remember Elimelech and the two sons, one of which would have been Ruth's husband. Perhaps we can see that chesed being translated here as gracious loyalty to the family, to the entire family, gracious loyalty. And I think by underlining uh, underlining this exclamation, the author wants us to think about We can't not think about God showing gracious loyalty to Naomi and to Ruth. Daniel Block, again, he says, Boaz embodied divine grace. So Ruth has not only encountered a gracious man by the name of Boaz, but Ruth has seen the favor of God himself. Well, you see it there. Secondly, Naomi goes on to explain that Boaz is a relative. This would have been news to Ruth. I don't think she would have known this at that point. She was probably unaware of any relation that Boaz had with Elimelech's family. Now, this particular statement doesn't hint at anything that's to come, but the one that Naomi says next probably begins to help us think about the future. She says next, he is one of our family redeemers. Maybe you've heard that phrase from, a, from an older wording, kinsman redeemers. Now, we're going to come back to that concept. We aren't going to explore that today, but perhaps Naomi's mind began to run. Oh, Boaz. Yeah, yeah, I remember him. 
And, and then the, the reader's beginning to think now, oh, he's a, he's a redeemer. Will he act upon his obligation as a redeemer to, the, to this family? And how is this going to work out? And, and what, will, what will Boaz do or not do? And by the way, we are amiss if we don't see Yahweh right in the middle of this. Remember, even in the beginning, the author says, by chance, by sheer luck, Ruth ended up in Boaz's field. And now we're it's all shaking down to be a whole lot more than just a pile of grain to, to hold the women over the winter. It's the silent, sovereign hand of God at work. Verse 21, Ruth speaks. But right before she speaks, look what the author puts in there. Ruth, the Moabitess, or the, Mo, the Moabite, he's reminding us she's a simple Moabite, She's not generally accepted in Israel. She's not generally favored in Israel. By the way, would that come in the way of the family redeemer since she's not an Israelite? Ruth excitedly adds one more blessing to the current scene there. She says, Boaz has told me to stay with his workers until the harvest is complete. In other words, she's guaranteed more grain. Keep in mind, it's not just grain for the day, but this is the harvest. This is the opportunity to gather enough to have provision for the whole of the next year that they're looking forward to, the Naomi and Ruth. And then, of course, in 22, Naomi responds affirmatively, yes, it's good for you to work in the, in the field of Boaz with his female servants. And part of that, I think, in her mind is for your protection. We know you're okay there. And then... <clears throat> Um, in, the, in the concluding verse of the chapter, verse 23, we see Ruth did indeed stay with Boaz's reapers until the barley harvest was finished, and then what? Through the wheat harvest, which was successive to the barley harvest. All the while she lived with Naomi. Recall for a minute the words of Naomi at the end of chapter 1. And then look at the words of Naomi at the end of chapter 2. The reader, the hearer, us, as we think through this story, in that short amount of verses, Yahweh is up to something, isn't he? It's being revealed to us. To be sure, the kindness of God is shown through Boaz, but the kindness of God is shown to these widows as he orchestrates the whole plan as a whole narrative, a large narrative. God's larger plan being worked out. We've had glimpses of, of, of God as the silent sovereign. I think often in our current situation in life, whatever it might be, it's hard sometimes to feel him or to see him. But that's just fine. That's okay. We can trust that he is up to something. That's part of the reason for good nonfiction like this. We know that God is at work all along, all through history and even to today. We have a foundation then a belief that God is at work even though he's rarely obvious. We never know how we fit into the grand scheme of God, do we? At least not this side of heaven, I don't think. We may not know. And what is he up to? Usually we're not sure. And that's just fine because we can trust him and we can rely on him.
Well, we've noticed several different points here in the story today. I hope that you can take something home. Take it into the week. What will it be? We've talked, we've been confronted with reputation. I, I wonder, what is the trajectory of your reputation? How would your devotion to God's principles be rated? What is, you, you, have a, you will have a reputation. What is it going to be defined by? And how long is it going to last? And why is it going to last? Listen to the first couple of verses out of Proverbs chapter 3. It says, My son, don't forget my teaching, but let your heart keep to my commands. For they will bring many days, a full life, and well-being. Never let loyalty and faithfulness leave you. Tie them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And listen to this. Then you will find favor and a high regard with God and with people. We've seen those who embodied divine grace in a manner of speaking. Boaz, Eric Little, giving others what they don't deserve. We've seen deep faith in God to live righteously. Faith to prioritize God's principles. Okay, God, I will obey you at all times, no matter what. A belief, then, that's expressed in action. We've seen generosity few other things, sacrifice, extraordinary kindness, unselfishness, mercy extended. How are we treating those in our life, those around us in the church or those around us outside of the church? Is God's blessing on your life because of your obedience to him? Lastly, <clears throat> let us be reminded to trust in God and to act in faith even though we don't see his overall plan. Right? It's a matter of faith to let go of the unseen, to hope in him. We don't see it all. We can't see it all. We don't know what he's going to do or how he's going to provide or how he's going to affect justice or any number of things, but he is at work. And I think that's one reason we have stories like this, is to be reminded that God is at work. Maybe it's in the background, if you will, but he's at work through it all. So take something home. How can, how can you draw closer to the Lord in your walk through this passage? Let's just pray as we finish up today. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for these remarkable people, Boaz, Ruth specifically, even Eric Little, the reputations that we, that we see that continue because of their choices. And their reputation points to you. It points to you as a God of devotion, a God of loving kindness, a God of all power, a God who, who has everything in his hand. In, you have it in your hand. I pray that we could trust you. I know there's so much room for growth in my own life in saying, I can hope in you. I can trust you. Nothing escapes you. Thank you for each one here. 
Thank you for the things we need to grow in. I pray for power to do that. I pray for power to make commitments, to make goals and, and changes where, where they need to take place. You are a part of our lives, Holy Spirit. And we ask it now in the name of Jesus. Amen.